allowing John himself to tell us in his own words what his particular purpose was in writing this gospel. Now you may say, oh, I know where that's going to be discovered. That will be discovered in the preface, or which we call the prologue, occupying chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Well, that is true. Uh, a careful study of that prologue will show you that a great number of points which are enlarged and elaborated in the gospel are suggested by perhaps a half a line or part of a verse. But it's very concentrated. And I have a feeling we shall understand that preface better when we know a little bit more about the gospel itself. It sounds a bit, hand, bit backhanded perhaps at first to say, fancy reading the preface last. But if ever you've written anything for publication, you will know that you never write your preface till the book's all over. And when the book's all over and you've finished it, you have an uneasy feeling that perhaps you haven't done what you ought to have done, so you write a preface to make up for some of the bits that have omitted, or call attention of the reader to some feature that you haven't underlined as you should. I'm not saying that's the way that John did it, but that's the way we will approach it. Get some idea of the Gospel first, go back to the concentrated teaching of the prologue nearer to the end. All right, well, we come right to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, to discover his own words where he gives us uh, a fairly comprehensive idea as to why he wrote this gospel. He has been dealing, as you know, throughout the gospel with signs. Other gospel writers call them miracles. John, why he believed they were miracles, that is to say they were interpositions of divine power, sometimes uh, cutting across ordinary natural phenomena, and yet he said, I'm lifting them out because of their significance. They have a special uh, testimony that I'd like to incorporate. So he says in verse 30 of John 20, And many other signs, truly, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And it's rather remarkable uh, that he's only put eight of these signs in this book. And yet he tells us that there were such a number of them, as you read a bit further, you might as well glimpse over to the 21st chapter, verse 25, he says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Well, that's a figure of speech, because well, I mean, it's hopeless to think about the world not containing the books that were written, if you're going to just have uh, literally... Uh, but I've heard things said like that, even with my books, you see, that there's not much room in the house for a lot more, you know, you'll get that sort of thing so you understand. Well, if, if there was such a multiplicity of things that our Saviour did and said, and John only said it, say to them, well, is there any person who could venture to say, oh, I could select eight, yes, I think we'd be overwhelmed with the difficulty, wouldn't we? So here's a need for divine overruling. Well, now he says, coming back to chapter 20. They are not written in this book. But these are written. Now here's the object. That, that's an elusive word. It stands for quite a number of different grammatical forms. Sometimes the word, as it is here, means in order that, with the object that. Obviously. But these are written with the object that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, 
you might have life to his name. Well, that's his own condensed uh, explanation of the purpose. A twofold purpose. They've been written that you may believe something, and they've been written so that when you believe that something, you might have life to his name. There is no hint in John's Gospel of any peculiar calling. I mean, in one part of the scriptures, you know you're dealing with a king and a kingdom. Another part, you're dealing with a bride. Another part, you're dealing with a body of Christ. But there's no definite statement as to where these hopes are going to be entertained, whether it's going to be on earth or in heaven or in the heavenly Jerusalem. You're left vain. All that you can say is, these are being called out to be guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And some people might say, oh, I don't think much of that. The others are going to be the bride, and we are only the guests. Well, I suppose it's a common thing with you friends to be invited to be the guests of royal weddings at Buckingham Palace and other places. You see, it's a, it's a great honour for an outside Gentile to become a guest of the, at the wedding of the king's son. We're not losing anything, and of course, that um, honour has others that go with it, so we'll leave that. John hasn't put his finger on any particular calling except to say they're the other sheep and they don't belong to that fold but they will one day constitute one flock. I think that's about as far as we can go in that direction. So we've now got the, the point that believing something about our Saviour leads to life in his name. Alright, now let's focus on that for the rest of our time. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Jesus is the name of a person, and he was by that time known. But what does it mean that you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, you remember in the first chapter, that was explained, that the word Messiah was the Christ. All you say, I see, we've got the explanation. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, how much further are you on, Fred? You've only changed from one language to another. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or the Christ. Well, if you haven't got any further than that, it's a word that's got a strange sound to it, but what does it mean? Unless it means something, it can't have any great power, can it? Well, what does the word mean? Or well, the word means, whether it's in Hebrew, Messiah, or whether it's in Greek, Christ, it means to anoint a person. To anoint a person. It, it means ointment. You see the word anointed, ointment. And that ointment was put on the person's head. Well, if you're not careful, you can say, well, what does all that mean? How should ointment being put on somebody's head give me life? Well, you say, no, 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 you've mixed, you've got, you haven't got it yet, friend. That ointment put on somebody's head was a symbol of something. It meant something. Ah, oh, that's what we want to get at, isn't it? So, will you turn to the Old Testament scriptures to get this? First of Kings, Chapter 19, verse 16. The first of Kings, chapter 19. And here we have a reference to the anointing. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. We've got two there together. The 
one I wanted particularly was the anointing of a prophet. We know there's plenty of references in the Old Testament to anointing a king. But here we have one that stands out particularly, that an anointed person, a Messiah, included the office of prophet. Well now I turn to Exodus 29, the book of Exodus chapter 29, where we are dealing with the tabernacle and the institution of its services, and there we read in chapter 29, verse 5, 6, and 7. And thou shalt take the garments, and put upon Aaron the coat, and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod, and the breastplate, and gird him with the curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head, and put the holy crown upon the mitre, then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. So now we know uh, that the anointed is God's prophet, priest, and king. We might as well have another one for the king. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 3. It doesn't seem quite nice to leave David out of it, does it? As the Lord's anointed. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 3. Let's read the first three verses. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And moreover in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Well now we can go back to John 20 and we can now say all what we've got so far. That these signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is God's anointed prophet, priest and king. Well that's something now instead of it being an ointment on a person's head we've now got the meaning of that anointing which was never used except for those sacred purposes. Well now John sets forth Christ particularly as a prophet. That is waiting for us in the prologue, in the very first word of this gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the 18th verse tells you why he's called the word, he hath declared him. But that's anticipating. I want to deal with that preface later on. But there he is, God's prophet, the one who speaks. And you, we can't divide his offices up. This anointed prophet is also the priest who offered himself without spot to God as sacrifice for sin. And he's also king, as you remember speaking to Pilate. He said, art thou a king? Or he says, my kingdom is not of this world, but he's nevertheless a king. So now we know that Jesus is the anointed prophet priest and king. Well now, what does that lead to? Oh, one other thing. The Son of God. This prophet, priest and king. If, you see, if we looked at the other scriptures, I can't remember the name of the man who is mentioned in the anointing of the prophet, the son of so-and-so, but I do know David was the son of Jesse and Aaron was the son of whoever it was, Levi or something, you see. But this one, 
one is, no, this is the Son of God. That's the distinctive character. Lifting him quite away from all these earthly types and shadows. And the Son of God dominates John's Gospel. You remember that text that comes to the mind immediately, we think of this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And then John writing in the epistle said, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So, here it is, the Son of God. And it may be that after we know that Jesus is the anointed prophet, priest and king, we could concentrate it all in one word and say, if I only know and only acknowledge that he's the Son of God, he will perform all those offices that God has laid upon him without my emphasis. But it's good to know that the Son of God came to be a mouthpiece to make known the truth. The Son of God came to offer that one all-sufficient sacrifice to make a way into the presence of God for us. He came to rule and to reign in God's good time. Now let's look at the word life. Now supposing we look at the, the way in which this word Son of God comes, I think you will introduce life at the same time. We've already partly quoted John 3. Let's look at John 3 because it will have more than one passage there. Verse 16 flows out of the words. Verse 14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Always another consideration. This Son of God is the Son of Man. Oh yes, he's a wonderful person. For although John's Gospel says that all things were made by him, and although he himself is recorded as saying before Abraham was, I am. Nevertheless, he came into this world as a babe. And if we haven't got a man, Christ Jesus, we're still without a kinsman redeemer. And the scripture emphasizes that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So we're not losing, we're gaining. He's the one who combines with his one person these two titles as no one else ever can or could. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be the world through him, by believe, by be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John goes on almost to weariness with his emphasis upon believing in the name of the Son of God, over and over again different angles, because that was the one insistent part of his message, without which all the rest were so many words. Look at chapter 5 of this gospel. Verse 24. Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. When it says that, that's not referring to physical resurrection, that's referring to spiritual uh, rising from the dead, as it were. The hour cometh and now is. Whereas presently, it says, um, 
A bit further down, verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, and it doesn't say, and now is. Oh no, the hour is coming, and that's future, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. So here we have this one who is the Word, the Word, he speaks, and his voice quickens the dead. Well now we can see that is true in the spiritual sense. Verse 24, Verily, verily I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and anticipating another chapter, the mark of being one of the sheep in John 10 is this, My sheep hear my voice, and follow me. But the mark of not being one of his sheep is, you do not follow me, you do not believe me, because you do not hear my voice. That's the distinctive mark. And of course, going back to the literal shepherd and the literal sheep in Palestine, that was very true. They knew their shepherd's voice, and there's been a lady here in these meetings who out in Palestine tried, uh, and others have tried, stand by a shepherd and to imitate his call of a sheep. You see, he said whatever it was, and the sheep came up to him. Well, then the other friend said exactly the same sound as sheep went on nibbling to no notice. Sheep have got more brains than we have sometimes, friend. Took no notice. My sheep hear my voice. You do not hear. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. All distinctive characteristics. So here we have in verse 24. Verily, verily, or again, John is very fond, or under the inspiration of the Spirit, when he's going to say something very solemn. That's his way of putting it. Somebody else would underline it in red. But this is the twofold emphasis on the word Amen. The word verily is simply the Hebrew word lifted out, Amen. A double Amen. Amen, Amen, I say unto you. He that heareth my word, and as a consequence of hearing, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. And what's the consequence? And shall not come into condemnation. That is passed from death unto life. So here we have then two things set out before us in this opening uh, series. We have the distinctive characteristic of John's Gospel, separating it from the other three, because the other three you are now are often called synoptics, meaning they have a common point of view, optic meaning to see. John stands by itself. And then secondly, he's definitely told us in simple language, the reason why he selected these signs to focus attention upon the person of Christ, believing that he is the anointed prophet, priest, and king, and believing that you have life through his name. Well, there we'll have to leave it again for today, and pick it up, God willing, when next we meet, to consider other features in this Gospel according to John, which is specially being treated in the way we're doing it today for young believers.